blocked with this German pilot. And although the German pilot showed him mercy, he just couldn't get it out of his heart or mind. What, you know, what possessed this man to do what he did so many years ago? And so he started to make an effort to contact Fritz. And sure enough, after putting an ad in a, uh, a flyer that was circulated among the former Luftwaffe pilots, there were only about 1,200 that survived. Out of 28,000 German pilots, only 1,200 made it. But he put an ad in that paper. And sure enough, one day he received a letter from Fritz, who had moved in the early 50s to Vancouver, British Columbia. And Fritz asked the question, how are you, Charlie? (laughs) I wondered what happened to the B-17 after I waved it goodbye and said, God, the rest is up to you. Well, Charlie Brown here on the left couldn't stand it. He looked up directory assistance as soon as he got this letter and made a call. And on the other end of the line in Vancouver was Fritz. And with tears, Charlie said, my God, it's you. It's you. Charlie would then invite Fritz to and his spouse, Haya. And that's uh, Charlie and Jackie Brown. They would invite them to their home in Florida. Actually, they met in a hotel. And they had a party. And at that party... Charlie invited all the relatives and the family of the crew that were spared so that Fritz could see how his act of mercy had impacted many, many service people on their lives. Powerful story picked up by CNN about 10 years ago. They both passed away, actually, a few months from each other in 2008. Ever since that meeting, they kept in touch and cared about each other's health and families. So there's no doubt that this German pilot, Fritz Stiegler, was merciful towards Lieutenant Charlie Brown and served as a complete peacemaker that December day in 1943 over European skies. You and I were touched by these stories of mercy and peace because they seem to make, for me at least, they make a very abstract and kind of spiritual uh, concept very concrete. But perhaps, as I do, sometimes we struggle to relate because few of us find ourselves written into stories as epic as this and as gargantuan as World War II. So the question for us today is, you know, what does it mean to be merciful just in our day to day? And the question for us is, what does it mean to be a peacemaker, especially if, like me, you are overwhelmed by the bigness of the earth and the total chaos, you know, even just geopolitically what's happening today? How are you and I to be peacemakers? So for this, we continue to look at Jesus' words from 2,000 years ago on the mountainside of Galilee when he gave his Sermon on the Mount. So we're looking at Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. Excuse me, Matthew 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 7 and verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 and verse 9. Jesus said, blessed, or as Brian has been having us say, the good life belongs to the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The good life belongs. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, when I read this, I first of all think, how did that sound to the listeners in that day? What would, how would they have received that? Was this kind of a common saying, or, or what would it be like to them? And for them, I think of three factors The first is the Old Testament culture into which they were born. And it was a culture very much based on um, restitution. And they would know, for example, that if they stole something, 
that the Old Testament law, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw these things from Leviticus 6 and Exodus 22 and 21, they would have known that restitution for theft was at 20% plus, right? So if I stole something, I owed it back to you plus a fifth more. If any of my negligence resulted in loss, like if you lost crops or lost an animal because of my negligence, I owed you the best of my crops or my animals. If I had any sexual activity outside of marriage, I was to be put to death, okay? That's for adultery and fornication and bestiality and incest and same-sex stuff, death. If I caused bodily harm of an animal, then it was one for one. I hurt your cow, you get mine. If I caused bodily harm of a slave, that slave would gain its freedom. If I caused bodily harm of a fellow citizen, that's where eye for eye, burn for burn comes from. And if I killed a citizen, then my death would be the only restitution that would satisfy the family. So they are in a context of retribution, restitution as well. They're also in the context of the occupying Romans, as you know. And the Romans were really good at severe punishments, both within and without. We get the word decimation from the idea of when a unit was punished, a Roman army unit. If they all deserted and they were found, they would take one out of every ten soldiers from that unit and either beat them or kill them. You hear the one in ten decimation comes from that practice. And then as a Newsweek article said at this time last year, at Easter last year, they said, Regarding uh, the Roman practices externally, in the age of Roman domination, only Rome crucified, and they did it often. Okay, this, this, this means of death that as believers we're so familiar with because it's how Jesus died. But you can imagine at the end of Roman conquest, an entire road being um, side by side, you know, scores of people on crosses crucified because of their uh, insurrection or rebellion or resistance. So this is the world that these guys are in. And they wouldn't be totally unfamiliar with the mercy of God. I mean, the entire Old Testament and the histories they have received it would have indicated God's mercy. You know, God was merciful to Cain. After Cain killed Abel, God should have killed Cain, but he let him live with a little mark to protect him. And but he was banished. And God showed mercy um, on Joseph, uh, excuse me, on Abraham, even though Abraham messed up a lot, God showed mercy to him. God was mercy to the whole, merciful to the whole world by raising up Joseph so they could avoid a famine. God was merciful to Israel at Passover when they were spared and the Egyptians were not. And on and on, God was merciful through the period of the judges, even though they kept rebelling, but God kept raising up leaders. And, and these guys, I think, would have recognized the, the, the goodness and the mercy, mercy of God. So I think... That just like for us, when we were reminded, like Beth reminded us this morning, God loves you. When Jesus is on a hillside saying, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think it was a very humanizing and a very encouraging moment for them. Because they were reminded that this is what God's like. And we can be like this too. Even though the West, rest of the world has, uh, is off its rockers, you know, just like it is today. So... I think that's how they would receive this encouragement. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They would receive it as, okay, there is mercy. There are things that are right and true and good in the world, and that's wonderful. And then we move on to the question of, why should we show mercy, though? Like, truly, to what end should we show mercy? And for this, you know, Jesus will address this 13 chapters later in a parable. 
And I found this parable best understood by a little video that Kelsey and I found recently. Why do we show mercy? Here's why. See, do we have any audio? That's a lie. I know that is. That kind of reminds me of the Lord's prayer. Forget, forgive others as forgive others as I'm forgiving you. We will forgive our debtors as. I will forgive you. That's in the Lord's prayer. Then Jesus said, I need to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a king, and he said, "You." He said to his servant, "You had to pay me lots and lots and lots of money. Now give me it." I don't have any. Then I will send your. Then you must send. Your, your whole family out to slavery and give me the money that you can owe me. No, no, please, 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 please. Mm. I'll do anything. Actually, can I sing you a song? Eh, go ahead. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. Here I stand, and here I stand. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And the master said, "Okay, I would forgive. I will forgive you." And then the servant said, "Thank you, you're the best king ever!" And he went jumping up and jumping up and down. And then he, when he went in outside, he saw somebody who owed him a little bit of money. He grabbed him by the neck and and shaked him around and said, "You will owe me all that money that you." That you own me. Stop joking. <laughs> then the mean old man told the little guy to pay him. You will pay me a thousand and twenty dollars, or else you will be thrown in jail. Then he said, "Please, please, please forgive me." No way. Now give me all the money. Two pennies is not that much at all. Can I sing you a song instead? Let it go, let it go. I don't know any of it. Stop singing that song. I feel bad for the person that got choked in the story because it's mean. You can die that way. It hurts and you can't breathe if they're strong enough. Then after the servant said 
please let me go? He said, no, I'm going to put you in jail so you can owe all the money you owe me. And then so he put him in jail. And then the servants healed. And then the servants heard they were, they were surprised. They went to their king and they said what happened. And the king ordered for the for that slip for that servant to come back and he said, Didn't I give you mercy? And the um, slave said, yeah. Yes. And so he said, Well you didn't give other people mercy. So, so you're in big trouble. So you're going in jail. <sighs> Um, I'm sad about the survey they got thrown in jail. And you only for your food, you only get to have bread. You'd have frozen water, which the white witch, with the white witch would have in Narnia. Frozen eggs. He'll have to wait until it melts. There's gonna be a lot of things. A lot. More like two days. Or if there was forks, you could just poke the ice and get to the water. Well, but there was no forks and spoons in high school. And that there's no such thing as there were sporks and, and water. For you knives. could use sporks and storks and, and fire. Doors? Yeah, and fire. This is what it's like in jail. Then the king said, "When if I forgive you, why don't you forgive the other people? Then Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brothers and sisters, you, God won't be happy. Since he forgives you, you should forgive other people. Is that right? The end. Kids, way to go. Kids of some Baptist church somewhere. Good job. <clears throat> I think Marble Falls. I think it's Texas. Why do we show mercy? There. Con- including references to Narnia, sporks, and frozen water, and all. All very biblical. <clears throat> we show mercy because we have been shown a lot of mercy. And as one source said, the, two, the, the reference to the two... Uh, amounts of money. You know, Jesus said that the, the first one owed, I think, 10,000 10, talents. And then uh, what was owed to that servant was just like denarii. And the difference is a factor of 600,000. So Jesus is making his point. We owe to God, you know, about 600,000 more in restitution than we could ever demand from someone else. So we're merciful because we need mercy. And, you know, honestly, in the day-to-day, you know, how, how, how do we show mercy? You know, the thing that I found is that it's humble and broken people that show mercy more quickly. So versus me just giving a how-to as far as how to show mercy, I just would observe that it's people who are um, broken and people who uh, have been through some life that are able to be very merciful. And in our day-to-day, I find that I have epically ordinary opportunities uh, among family and friends and colleagues and neighbors to show mercy. And really how it looks like for me is it's just keeping the relational door open even after we're offended, right? And our day-to-day, how we extend mercy is we're offended, we get offenses, right? Things come our way. We get mad. We are wounded. We're hurt. We're annoyed. We're frustrated. 
And of course, because we're Christians, we say, I forgive you, I forgive you, everything's good, great. But really, I think that mercy then comes when we keep the relational door open and we're actually willing to be hurt again. I think that's how we show mercy in the day-to-day. The good life belongs to those who move into mercy. It's easier just to pull back from relationships when we're offended. But the way we show mercy is we continue to move into relationships, even ones that are prickly and thorny, because we want to show mercy. The good life belongs to those who move in to mercy. The second thing we want to look at today is the peacemakers, right? We agreed that Fritz Stiegler showed both mercy and was very much a peacemaker on that December day in 1943. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons or the children of God. Or the good life belongs to the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Again, Jesus' hearers, how would they have interpreted this? What would this sound like to them? They were a people that had a long history of armed conflict and a sense of God's favor and disfavor based on that the, their victory or their defeats. And the fact is, most recently in their history, history, having been recently returned from exile from Babylon, you know, Babylon was just cruel. And they were just waiting for the Messiah. And uh, the world was very volatile in that day. In fact, we know that a lot of the uh, banditry and the rebellion against the um, Roman uh, government that was occupying, that would come to a head a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So for sure in their world, banditry and revolts were on the rise. And so I think when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, it's pretty radical for them. Whereas blessed are the merciful, this is just totally a conjecture here. I think for blessed are the merciful, that would be, as I said, kind of a reminder, yes, God's good. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, my sense is that's a little more counter-cultural. That's a little more out there, a little more risky, a little more crazy. Why should we be peacemakers? Why should we be peacemakers? As Beth actually alluded to in her children's time, it has everything to do with who we are and whose we are. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And actually a few verses later in Matthew 5, on this same message, the same time that Jesus is spending with these people, he says something very radical, and he'll say, love your enemies. Right? You've heard it say, hate your enemies, because that's how this goes in this world. But I'm saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, because that's what your father's like. Your father sends sun and rain, both of which are needed on the good and the bad, on the just and on the unjust. So why are we peacemakers? Because that's what God's like. Sure, there are debts to be paid. Sure, people have wronged one another for decades, centuries, millennia. But you know what God's like? God keeps sending the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's why. Whenever Paul references sons of God, he says in Romans 8.14 that we are led by the Spirit. God's children are led by the Spirit. He says the world is waiting for us to be revealed. Both of those are from Romans 8. And in Galatians, he says it's by faith that we're children of God. So by faith, we as sons and daughters of God are called to be peacemakers. So why are we peacemakers? We are peacemakers 
because we're part of the family. We belong to God. And that's what God is actively doing day in and day out, though in our world it doesn't seem like it, but it's true. How do we do it? How do we become peacemakers? And I want to talk about two thoughts about how we become peacemakers. The first is, you know, resolving conflict. I want to talk about that. Then the other way that we're peacemakers, we are people who bring peace and the Hebrew word of the, the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word there, the Hebrew word is shalom, as many of you know. So it's not just resolving conflict, which we'll talk about, but it's also bringing shalom, bringing peace, bringing fullness, bringing life. How do we do it? So first on the reconciling, you know, over here, just how do we, how do we, how are we peacemakers in our day to day? Well, this is where Paul's word in Romans twelve eighteen. he's such a good practical pastor. I appreciate it. You can tell Paul's been around people because Paul says this. He says, hey, guys, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I like that because guess what? You and I get into conflicts, don't we? And they get messy and they get hard and they get complex and we got history and it gets messy. But Paul's admonition is, as far as it's up to you, live peaceably, right? You move towards one another. You try to clear the air. You, what's the other song I want to sing right now? Um, say what you need to say. Thank you. What's that? Who's that artist? I just forgot. Mayor, is that right? Say what you need to say. I love that song. I'm all about clearing the air. So let's do it, right? But, you know, you can't always control the other person's response. You just can't. So as far as up to you, we live peaceably. We move in. Like we move in to be merciful, we move in to be peacemakers. And I always appreciate it. When someone initiates with me and says, hey, I got something on my heart. You frustrated me or you hurt me when you said that. I say, yes, bring it on. Let's do a little Romans twelve eighteen, right? Because we need to live peaceably with one another. What about in these larger conflicts we find ourselves in? Israel, Palestine, Kurdistan, Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, stuff that are just, again, millennia and beyond old. What do we do? What do we do? Well, to help us answer that question, we'll look at another video here. And I want to tell you about these two people. I had the opportunity to hear them speak when I was at the Q conference in Nashville in 2014. This is an Israeli mother named Rabi and a Palestinian father named Bassam. Robbie lost her son, who was serving as he needed to in the reserves of the Israeli army. Um, he was shot by a sniper. And Bassam lost his 10-year-old daughter because an Israeli border patrol shot her from the back into the back of her head as she was at school. And she was 10 years old. It's from 60 feet away. Listen to these two parents as they share about their experience. Israel-Palestine conflict is violent, emotional, and seemingly intractable. Even if you have a peace plan and you think it can be put together, what, what happens to the cycle of pain and violence afterward? Is ending retributive violence possible? Well, there's the parent circle. It's a, it's a family forum, and they believe so. They think that bringing together bereaved parents and family members, both Palestinian and Israeli, to work towards reconciliation. They believe it's a good idea. Talk to me about your son, David. What, what happened? David was a student at Tel Aviv University, and he was studying for his master's in the philosophy of education, and he was called to go to the reserves. 
He was part of the peace movement and part of the officers that signed to say they would not serve in the occupied territories. And he was in a terrible um, feeling of not knowing actually what to do. So David um, went to the reserves and he was killed by a sniper mm. along with nine other people at a checkpoint which never should have been there in the first place. The first thing that I said to the soldiers when they came to tell me that David had been killed was you may not kill anybody in the name of my child. It's hard for me to say, it's to, to me right and wrong does matter. Is there room for me to say, yes, we both lost a child, but my child was lost because of an occupation and your child was lost because... Well, if it was your child, you wouldn't give a damn. You would be just as unhappy as anybody who lost a child for any other reason. And we're not in the game of comparison of suffering. If we didn't believe that evil people could change, then there would be no point in the work we're doing. Right. God, you know, you all are in... I keep remarking on what place you're in. There's so much cynicism in the world. There's so much uh, commitment to the idea that people are what they are, we are who we're always going to be, and we just have to manage. And what I'm getting from you all is a sense of a world that is not yet, of a possibility that hasn't been fully formed, but that is necessary. Oh, listen, I'm not Joan of Arc, okay? <laughs> I'm a very pragmatic person, and I think that without reconciliation, there will never, ever be peace in Israel and Palestine. There will just be another ceasefire. Now, what brought you two together, exactly? How did you two connect for this? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I lost my 10-year-old daughter, Abir, in front of her school on the 16th of January 2007 to an Israeli border police who shot and killed her from a distance of uh, 20 meters in her head from the back outside of her school. Uh, I didn't find the answer to kill an Israeli daughter. Forgiveness for me, it's, it's a responsibility. He need to know that he's responsible for this crime. And I'm ready to give him life yeah. as a responsibility that he'll never repeat this crime again. Uh, I think it's, it's very difficult. Unfortunately, we are uh, normal human beings, live in unnormal situations. So we became, we became uh, maybe a terrorist sometimes or killers. In these situations, you, never, you cannot protect yourself and also your, your kids just in a safe place you can be uh, normal so we need to end this uh, to start to end this conflict there are um, so many more nuggets that you can grab from them if you just look them up on youtube it's actually hard for me to select i needed to just choose something short enough for the purposes of our time together but um, really when they both share their stories it's just riveting it's just unbelievable honestly and so as you saw there they're part of something called the parent circle about 500 Palestinian and Israeli parents who've come together to say, enough is enough. And we, as you kind of heard it from her, it was, this, this was a little bit more on her side, but like Robbie's saying, it, you know, if we don't believe evil people can change, then what are we doing? And um, so in answering the question, how do we become peacemakers? You know, few of us will be put in the position of Robbie and Bassam of having to uh, take such an offense as the death of a child and say, I'm going to overcome that. I'm going to move towards the people who represent my aggressors and we're going to, um, we're going to deal with this. Few of us will have to do that. But when those 
opportunities come, they may present themselves to us. And I pray, I know for myself, that I would have as much courage as these two and enough grace to forgive as they have. But I'll tell you what we all can do. Psalm 122.6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We have an incredible app called the Nation's Prayer app. And what you and I can do is we can fall on our knees and say, God have mercy. As I say, few of us will be in the place of Rabbi and Bassam, but we all can pray, God have mercy on this conflict in Africa, this one in Asia, that in the Middle East, here in our own country, right? My goodness, people at these rallies, <sighs> crazy stuff, right? I, I just actually, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to think that this is happening in our times, that at political rallies, there's um, violence. So we can pray for peace. So we've talked about the reconciling conflict, both interpersonally and globally, you know, how we're peacemakers. The other part I want to talk about is not just uh, as a, um, people who reconcile active conflicts, but also how do we bring shalom? How do we bring the goodness of God? We're going to end here. You know, how, do we, how do we bring the, the fullness of God into people's lives? And I also want to tackle this interpersonally and globally as well. First, interpersonally. I love what um, Paul says in Colossians 3.15 because he, he shows a reality here that we need to tap into. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body. Now, what I love about this passage, and be thankful, yes. What I love about this passage is there's a pre-existing reality out there, and it is the peace of Christ. No matter how anxious or upset or in conflict you are interpersonally or globally, there's a reality that exists, and it's the peace of Christ. It is able to be tapped into just by surrender. right? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So there is capacity then for us to surrender and say, Jesus, let your peace rule and reign. I know that when I'm anxious or I'm very fragmented, we need to connect with someone who's whole and at home with themselves. And at, at the top is God. You know, at the very least, when we're feeling fragmented, anxious, and upset, we, we can surrender to Jesus. Again, there's a reality. He's totally whole. He's a totally integrated person. We can come to him. And, of course, it also happens in the body, too. You know, sometimes the way Jesus ministers to me this piece is I need to tell a few people, hey, I'm upset, or, you know, this isn't going so well. And let me, let me grab onto someone who has some peace, who's tapped into the existing reality of Christ's peace. And then, do you know that God calls us to bring shalom, not only interpersonally, but he calls us to bring shalom into places of great chaos and disorder as well. I was so encouraged to hear um, Alan share about one of the pastors that he supervises. Alan pastors different supervisors. Or, <laughs> wow. Alan supervises different uh, workers overseas. And he told me about one in Kurdistan in northern Iraq. Yes, you can cheer for Kurdistan. <laughs> we, God loves them. And um, this particular pastor, he, in a Syrian refugee camp, he's arranged volleyball leagues. Now, when you go through the Navigate Training School, the first thing that Beth is going to not teach you to do is how to run a volleyball league, but she is going to teach you that the kingdom of God is about joy, peace, and righteousness. And so what I appreciate about this pastor in Kurdistan is 
bringing something to do. These refugees are stuck in the confines, and how he's bringing shalom is he's doing two things. He's starting some volleyball leagues, and he's also starting some bakeries. Bakeries give people something to do. They eat. Volleyball, there's some shalom happening there. Instead of just, I don't know, gnawing their finger, their thumbnails all day and wondering what's next, he brought some shalom. And so there's ways that you can bring shalom into your office. Maybe you haven't thought about how in your neighborhood, how in your, na- um, in your corner of the world you can bring shalom, but you can, and God has a strategy for you. I have to assume that this pastor said, God, what do you want me to do in this Syrian refugee camp? And God gave him some ideas and he started to run with them. So the good life belongs to those who move in to peace, right? Whether it's interpersonally, we need to move into peace. If you find yourself in this awful situation that Rabbi and Bassam knows how they moved in towards the other. They moved in towards their enemy. The good life belongs to those who move into peace. The good life belongs to those who move into mercy. At this point, I'm going to invite the worship band to come back up. And my question for us to process as we pray and respond, is where am I moving out? Right? Because moving out's the easier way. Moving out of conflict, moving out of showing mercy to someone, that's, that's easier. It just takes way less energy. It really is where the inertia is in our flesh. It's just better to leave it alone, right? And yet God calls us to move in to show mercy. He calls us to move in to show peace. Where is he calling you to move in to be a peacemaker? Where is he calling you to move in to show mercy? That's the question I believe the Holy Spirit would ask us today. Why don't we all stand up? As you're standing, I want to let you know about a couple of things that our prayer team felt this morning. We felt that Jesus wanted to heal a right knee and or right foot. Also, we felt like Jesus wanted to heal an elbow. And we also felt a great burden, actually a great, great burden for anyone feeling specifically quite anxious, out of balance, low, depressed. So if you fit either of those profiles, I'm going to invite some of our prayer people. Jeremy, come on, why don't you stay up there? Beth Price, why don't you make yourself available? And Amy Hubert and Ben Little. And Renee, Macaulay, you guys are praying. Make yourselves available here at the front. So if any of those things speak to you, we believe it's just the goodness of God and he wants to help you today. All right, let's pray.